You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Emily Ashenfelter. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's June 23rd. For U.S. teachers, rates of job-related stress have returned to pre-pandemic levels. This may be good news, but teachers continue to report worse well-being than the general population of working adults. New results from our 2023 State of the American Teacher Survey provide some insights. Here is just a sample of what we found. 23% of teachers said that they were likely to leave their job by the end of the 2022-2023 school year. The top reasons why they intended to leave, stress and disappointment of the job, salary, and number of working hours. That leaves 77% of teachers who said that they were unlikely to leave their job by the end of the 2022-2023 school year. They cited their ability to positively affect students and positive relationships with students and other teachers as their top reasons for intending to stay. Black teachers in our survey reported significantly higher rates of burnout than white teachers. Study co-author Elizabeth Steiner says that the survey data suggests a pattern that plays out in real life. Black teachers do turn over and leave their jobs at higher rates than white teachers. Female teachers reported significantly higher rates of frequent job-related stress and burnout and were less likely to report feeling resilient to stressful events than male teachers. Finally, three-quarters of teachers said that they had access to at least one type of well-being or mental health support in 2023, but only slightly more than half of the teachers said these supports were adequate. You can find the complete survey results at RAND.org. The war in Ukraine has brought the Wagner Group, Russia's largest private military company, out of the shadows. Before the February 2022 invasion, It operated mostly covertly in Ukraine, Africa, and Syria. Its leader even denied the group's existence until last fall. But today, there are 50,000 men in Wagner uniforms, up tenfold since before the war. Wagner isn't alone, though. Moscow's desire for additional fighters in Ukraine has created a breeding ground for the expansion and development of Russian private military companies, or PMCs. What might explain Russia's proclivity for PMCs? Rand experts explain that, with more PMCs at his disposal, Vladimir Putin can pit competing groups against one another, matching his divide-and-rule political management style. Another advantage as far as Putin is concerned, the casualties of PMC fighters aren't counted among the official war dead which might help maintain domestic support for the war. Aside from what Putin sees as self-serving benefits of PMCs, our experts say that the, quote, explosion of what are essentially private armies could have devastating impacts. The growing number of competitors could also end up pushing more Russian PMCs to pursue profitable contracts beyond Ukraine. Wagner and others have already engaged in operations in Africa, Asia, Europe, and South America. And there are horrific reports wherever they go. During operations in Africa, Syria, and Ukraine, Wagner personnel have committed mass executions, 
rape, child abductions, and torture. Ultimately, it appears that the Ukraine war is likely to be, quote, a catalyst for bloodshed elsewhere in the world at the hands of Russian PMCs. Psychedelics such as psilocybin, MDMA, and LSD are attracting interest as treatments for mental health conditions, including post-traumatic stress syndrome and depression. This has led some states and cities to change their laws. In some cases, the changes simply make possession enforcement a low priority for police. But other jurisdictions are going further. For example, after ballot measures passed in Oregon and Colorado, those states are in the process of licensing psilocybin producers and service centers where anyone 21 or older can use the hallucinogenic under supervision. This shift is akin to what began decades ago with medical cannabis, although the policy changes are coming at a much faster pace this time around. Also, like cannabis, most psychedelics are federally prohibited, raising some tough questions for the federal government. Rand experts highlighted a few of those questions in the San Francisco Chronicle this week. First, how will the Department of Veterans Affairs address the use of psychedelics by its patients outside of clinical trials? Some veterans are accessing psychedelics to address mental health disorders, either on their own, with underground therapists, or attending retreats in other countries. Some of them may want to discuss this with their department clinician, but may fear losing benefits if they do. Second, how will the Indian Health Service, which serves 2.5 million American Indians and Alaska Natives, approach psychedelics in the care it provides? The use of psychedelics has deep roots in indigenous healing practices, and the appropriation and commercialization of various traditional medicines has raised many ethical concerns. Third, what will the U.S. Department of Justice do about the licensed producers and service centers in Oregon and Colorado that will violate federal law? Will they crack down on these facilities or just ignore them? Fourth, and finally, what will Congress do about the supply and possession of psychedelics outside of traditional medical settings? So far, no state has allowed psychedelics to be sold in licensed stores, but it would be naive to think that some states won't try to head in that direction. Does Congress want to be proactive in shaping these regulatory models, reactive, or remain largely on the sidelines as it has with cannabis? Some federal decision makers may not want to wrestle with these issues now, but as more states and localities liberalize their approach to psychedelics, the pressure will mount. For as long as there have been scientific breakthroughs and technological innovations, people have been labeling them as magic, witchcraft, or the product of nefarious conspiracies directed by powerful, unseen actors. Artificial intelligence is no different, says Rans Douglas Jung. In fact, AI is, quote, ready-made for conspiratorial thinking. To start, AI can tell you what it thinks will happen— but it cannot explain why it thinks what it thinks. This gap in our understanding of how AI arrives at its responses to our prompts is exactly the kind of narrative void that conspiracy theories step in to help fill. Even more concerning, conspiracy theories about AI could be weaponized. Geopolitical or corporate competitors could use propaganda to spread misinformation or rumors, undermining trust in AI implementations. 
These same bad actors could tailor potential conspiracy theories to what specific groups would find most threatening, and thus most believable. It's clear that it would be dangerous to ignore conspiracy thinking around AI. But, Jung says, we can do better than simply just paying attention to it. He suggests presenting counter-narratives, messaging that debunks misinformation spread through conspiracy theories and, in turn, addresses people's concerns related to specific applications of AI, such as facial recognition in stadiums or chatbot therapists. Messaging campaigns can help explain how AI is being used in these cases, including what data is being collected, for what purposes, and by whom. These messages should emphasize broad scientific and public agreement in order to ensure that they are effective for people who hold different worldviews or ideological leanings. The messages should also be timely, providing warnings at the time of exposure to misinformation, and repeatedly retracting misinformation. The time to do this is now, Jung says, before conspiracy theories take hold in the minds of the public. Recently proposed legislation would prevent the Department of Veterans Affairs from beginning to offer gender confirmation surgery and restrict its ability to provide medications that are already prescribed to transgender veterans. These provisions do not align with medical consensus, says Rand's Kayla Williams. Medical consensus, in fact, promotes quite the opposite. Pharmacologic and surgical treatment to align the physical body of transgender individuals with their gender identity has been proven time and again to be effective and even necessary healthcare interventions for those with gender dysphoria. These standards of care are endorsed by the American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, the American College of Physicians, and many other respected professional associations. Going against these endorsements would exacerbate the tremendous barriers and challenges that LGBTQ plus veterans already face, Williams says. For example, veterans already carry a heavier health burden than non-veterans. LGBTQ plus individuals are at an increased risk of experiencing violence and sexual assault, and LGBTQ plus veterans are more likely to have experienced sexual assault and trauma during their service, all of which influences their health and well-being outcomes post-service. LGBTQ plus veterans also report worse health and more chronic conditions, partly due to barriers in care, stigma, and discrimination. Providing medically necessary gender-affirming care is also an important part of supporting the vigorous efforts to reduce the rate of veteran suicide, which remains troublingly high overall, and is even higher among the LGBTQ veteran population. Notably, among the general population, there is strong evidence to suggest that suicidality decreases significantly among transgender individuals who receive appropriate care. Williams notes that the Department of Veterans Affairs has been working diligently to improve the quality and sensitivity of the care it provides LGBTQ veterans, in alignment with the research and the medical community's consensus-based standards of care. To stay true to its mandate, quote, it must be free to provide medically indicated pharmacologic and surgical care to transgender veterans. That's it for today's episode. You can learn more about the topics we discussed in the show notes 
at rand.org podcast. We'll see you next week. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis.